With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's the day. This is the day that we finally begin working on an actual investigation into the murders of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch. Up to this point, we've simply been in the evidence gathering phase, focusing mostly on victimology. We've been trying to retrace the boys' steps by gathering any and all sightings of the boys on the afternoon that they went missing and were ultimately killed. As with any investigation, at some point you have to make a shift from evidence gathering to evidence analysis. Then you have to use that evidence to develop your first hypothesis of how the crime was actually committed. At this point, we're about two months into this reinvestigation. And I think regarding victimology, we've gathered as much information as we can. And now it's time to start analyzing it. In today's episode, we're going to go back to the beginning, back to 2.55, when the school bell rang and Michael, Stevie, and Christopher were let out of class. I want all of you to understand as we move forward that what we're working on here today is what we refer to as a hypothesis. It's not even to the point of being a theory. The way this process works is we use the information at hand to try to develop the narrative that I just mentioned. The next step will be to take that hypothesis and compare it back to all of the evidence and keep searching for more to determine if our hypothesis can be developed into a theory. So as we move forward today, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to start working on a hypothetical timeline based on all of the sightings and information we have about the three boys that day. As we move along, as promised back in episode 501, we're going to analyze each and every sighting for its credibility. Some will be included and some will be eliminated. Then at the end of the episode, I'm going to give you a summary timeline, a hypothetical timeline. It's important for you to understand as we do this, that this timeline is not fact, and I'm not claiming that it is. It's simply a hypothesis based on what we know to this point. And when we get to that point, I'll explain how the procedure works moving forward. But for now, let's go back to the end of the school day at Weaver Elementary School on May 5th, 1993, at 2.55 p.m. At 
2.55 p.m., the school bell rang at Weber Elementary. Now, we've always known that Pam Hobbs picked Stevie Branch up at school that day, but as I began to dig a little bit deeper into all of her statements throughout all of these years, it seems as though she didn't actually pick Stevie up at 2.55, but rather she signed him out early that afternoon. In one interview, she said this is because Amanda was acting up that day and she wanted to get Stevie and get him home. So somewhere before 2.55, Pam Hobbs picks up Stevie and they begin the walk back to their home at 1601 South Macaulay. When they get home, they settle in. Pam asked Stevie if he has any homework, and he said that he'd already completed it. At 3.30 p.m., Pam says Michael stops by and asks Stevie to go riding bikes with him. She says no, they beg her, and she finally agrees as long as Stevie's home by 4.30. In a later interview, she states that she thought that Michael had a watch. Next, we move up about 10 minutes to 3.40. Pam says in a police note that we've actually found in the Chris Wall police file, that Christopher Byers stopped by at 3.40 looking for Stevie and Michael. She told him that he had just missed them and that he came in to play with Amanda. In later interviews, years after the trials, Pam states that Chris was watching Muppet Babies with Amanda and he left after it ended at 4 p.m. A listener actually sent me a copy of the newspaper containing the TV guide for that day and for what it's worth, the guide says, quote, Muppets were on from 3.30 to 4 p.m. It doesn't say Muppet Babies, just Muppets. Although the space in the guide was not large enough to spell out Muppet Babies. Then we have a time gap between 4pm and 4.30. There are a few sightings during this period, but they're all non-specific. They say things like, saw some boys, or saw the boys. But no one actually names Stevie, Michael, or Christopher, or identifies any of them by their physical attributes. So next we move on to 4.30 p.m. Now it's been about an hour since Stevie and Michael left the Hobbs house and about a half hour since Chris left. At 4.30, Narling Hollingsworth says that she saw three boys all on bikes near Weaver Elementary School. This is the first sighting where we have evidence of a mysterious fourth boy. She says that all three boys had bikes. However, Chris Byers did not have a bike. She also says that the one boy that she got a good look at was heavier than the other two and was wearing shorts. This does not fit the description of any of our three victims. If Narling's sighting is credible, then that would put Stevie and Michael riding their bikes with an unknown friend at 4.30. And Christopher Byers was not with them. Around this same time, we have the statement from Michael Thomas's daughter at 1202 Proctor. She says that she saw Michael playing with someone whose name is redacted from the note. She says that this occurred around 4 or 4.30, and that Michael said that he had a secret hideout behind Mayfair, and he was going to go there. This is the first sighting that we have of Michael without Stevie. If Narling Hollingsworth's statement is credible, then this sighting would have had to have occurred after Hollingsworth saw Michael and Stevie together. Geographically speaking, Hollingsworth says she saw the boys near Weaver Elementary on Barton. That's about halfway in between Stevie's house to the south and Michael Thomas's house to the north, which is up near the crime scene. We can't really count on any of the sightings to be absolutely accurate with times. That's important to note. Meaning, 4.30 could mean 4.25, 4.27, or 4.36. It could even be as late as 5 or as early as 4. No one was documenting times on a watch. 
But in order for both of these sightings to be accurate, shortly after Narlene saw the boys, Stevie would have had to separate from the group right around 4.30. And the fourth boy would have also split off, and Michael would have headed north to the house on Proctor. Unless our mysterious fourth boy is the boy that Michael Thomas's daughter saw him with. If we have to weigh the credibility of both statements against each other, Michael Thomas's daughter definitely wins. She identifies Michael by name, whereas Hollingsworth could only give a vague description of, quote, the heavyset boy who was wearing shorts. As far as the redacted name in Thomas's statement, it could be our mysterious fourth boy, or it could be Doris Gately's grandson, Trey. They lived right around the corner from the Thomases on Little Elton, and Trey says that sometime that afternoon, he doesn't give a time, that he was playing with Michael Moore, just the two of them. Trey says that Michael left and didn't say where he was going. And we also have the statement of Jerry Walker. He says that he saw Michael near his house at 722 North 14th Street calling two black males names. He also doesn't give a time. However, if we go back through all 39 sightings, there appears to be only one period of time where Stevie is not consistently seen with Michael. That time period is from 4.30 to 5 o'clock. Then we also have a note from Sheila Dunlap at 709 Wilson who says that she saw Chris and Michael playing together at 4.30. Now, that's Chris and Michael, not Stevie and Michael. So let's pause here for a minute and break down the first two hours, from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Can all of these sightings fit together without conflicting with each other? I believe that they can, and here's a possible scenario. Michael gets out of school at 2.55 and is home shortly after 3 According to his mother, Dana, he asked to go to Stevie's and she gives him permission to go. It's about a five-minute bike ride at best from Michael's to Stevie's, so it's possible that he made a stop or two along the way. He arrives at Stevie's house at 3.30. Stevie and Michael leave the Hobbs house right about then, and they head north on 16th Street, which is right across the street from Stevie's house. At the same time, Chris Byers is traveling south on 14th Street from his house headed to Stevie's. The boys just missed each other. They're traveling in opposite directions, but never cross paths because they are on parallel streets. At 3.40, Chris gets to the Hobbs house. Pam's statement says that Chris was looking for Stevie and Michael. Now, this could be inference on Pam's part. However, if Chris did say that he was looking for both boys, then that could possibly indicate that he had had contact with Michael prior to heading down to Stevie's. Either he was just guessing, or somehow he would have had to know that Michael was going there. Let's couple this with the fact that Michael is on a bike and Christopher is on foot, coming from the same place, and Chris arrives 10 minutes behind Michael. When you account for that, we may be looking at a scenario where Michael told Christopher to meet him at Stevie's, but then took off with Stevie on their bikes before Chris arrives. In any case, at 4pm, Chris leaves the Hobbs house. None of the boys are seen again until around 4.30, when we have the series of sightings up and down Barton, 14th, and Wilson. This is where entering all of this information onto a map can really help to fill in the gaps. We know that Stevie and Michael left the Hobbs at 3.30. From there, there's nowhere to go but north. We don't have a single sighting of them for the next hour. Then they appear up by Barton at 4.30. The question that we have to ask is, how can there be nearly 40 sightings of the boys in the northwest corner of the neighborhood between 5 and 6.30, and not one single sighting between 3.30 and 4.30. I think that the answer lies in the door-to-door questioning. 
The police never canvassed anywhere south of Barton Street during their door-to-door questioning. Logic would tell us that if the boys leave 1601 South Macaulay and appear an hour later at 14th and Barton, they didn't fly there. They had to travel the streets between those two locations. We can use deductive reasoning here to theorize that between the hours of 3.30 and 4.30, Stevie and Michael were playing somewhere in the neighborhood between South Macaulay and Barton Street. These streets would include 18th, 17th, Garden, Scottwood, and 16th. Now, after the door-to-door episode, several listeners defended the West Memphis Police Department's decision to not canvass the south end of the neighborhood stating that the police had no reason to go down there because all indications were that they were in the north end of the neighborhood. But had police taken the time to do exactly what we just did and map out the known sightings and timeline, they would have seen a huge geographical gap that also lines up with a huge timeline gap. That hour between 3.30 and 4.30. Had the West Memphis PD bothered to go door-to-door in the south end of the neighborhood, they may have not only filled in the gaps in the timeline, but they could have even found the key to solving the case. Instead, we're left with a big blank space on a map otherwise filled with pins. We actually find proof of the West Memphis Police Department's incompetence in a newspaper article in the West Memphis Evening Times. The article titled, Horror, Fear Fills Community After Murders, ran on May 7th the day after the boys' bodies were found, and was written by Lance Watkins. Through months of investigation, the police department couldn't find the time to knock on the doors between the victims' homes, but Lentz managed to find the time and meet his deadline in less than 24 hours. Here's an excerpt from his May 7th article. Quote, Betty Johnson, who lives on North 16th Street, said Steve was a friend of her 10-year-old son. He, Steve, rode his bike past my house, on the day of the disappearance. In this article, Watkins is simply interviewing neighbors of the victims. What a concept. And he stumbles across a woman who said she saw Stevie riding his bike alone on the afternoon that the three were killed. Right smack dab in the middle of the blank space that we have on our map. So please, someone tell me again that there was no reason for police to interview anyone in that neighborhood. Imagine what we would know now if they had. Now let's jump back into our scenario. I believe that the sightings combined with the gap in time indicate that Stevie and Micah were playing on their bikes in the neighborhood between South Macaulay and Barton and 16th and 18th but from this point forward, I'll be referring to as the Southeast neighborhood between 3.30 and 4.30. I'm actually working now with listener Paul Day to track down property records in this area. Our intention is to do the door-to-door canvassing now that the West Memphis Police Department never did back in 1993. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. During the time period of 4 to 4.30, we don't have any sightings of Christopher. I believe that it's entirely possible that Chris did, in fact, catch up with the boys during this first hour. As we don't have any sightings of him, and we do have this gap in the door-to-door canvassing, I think that it's reasonable to at least consider the fact that the boys were playing together at the time. And we also have other indications that would support the idea that the boys had contact with each other early in the afternoon, that we're going to get to in Alan Bailey Jr.'s statement in a little bit. He's the boy that said that Michael told him that they were going to go pick up Christopher. So let's say that the three were all playing in the southeast neighborhood from 3.30 to 4.30. Around 4.30, the boys separate. The scenario could be that Stevie realized that it's close to the time when he's supposed to be home, and he tells the other boys that he has to go, and splits up from the group. Darling Hollingsworth sees three boys on bikes right about this time. The one that she was able to describe was the mysterious heavyset boy wearing shorts. This sighting was close to the intersection of 14th and Barton, the intersection where both Michael and Christopher lived. Chris goes home, and there's no one there. I think this would be when he attempts to break in through the window. Stevie and Michael and the mysterious heavyset boy leave the area of Christopher and Michael's houses when Stevie decides that he should head for home as well. So it could be about this time that Stevie breaks off from the group and heads for home. He travels down 16th Street, where he's seen by Betty Johnson. Since he was seen on Barton with Michael after 4.30, it's probably closer to 4.40 at this point. In an interview with Pam and Terry Hobbs by Dimension Films, They both stated that they left their house at 4.45 to look for Stevie at the Moore's house before dropping Pam off at work. I think that this scenario could have been very similar to what happened with Christopher earlier in the afternoon. Pam and Terry turn left on the Macaulay out of their driveway and head north on 14th, while at the same time Stevie is heading south on 16th, and they just miss each other. If this scenario is accurate... And again, I want to stress that this is simply a hypothesis based on these sightings. That when Stevie would have arrived home, there would have been no one there to meet him. Pam shifted Catfish Island started at 5 p.m. And Catfish Island is only about a mile away. So it wouldn't be more than a few minutes before her husband Terry would have returned home. I don't have any way of hypothesizing about what happened with Stevie at this point. But we do know that we don't have another confirmed sighting of Stevie again until after 6 p.m. Now, we do have Deborah Odinger's statement that she saw, quote, all three boys. However, her story has many versions and ranges in time from 5.30 until after 6. Sometimes they're walking, sometimes they're on their bikes. Sometimes she knows the boys and sometimes she doesn't. Unfortunately, given all of this, her sighting is less than reliable. And as we'll see moving forward, it really only makes sense when compared to all the other sightings if it did occur after 6 p.m. Now, Ben Crafton and Kim Williams, on the other hand, seem to have pretty accurate accounts. 
They both state that they saw specifically Stevie and Michael at 6 p.m. near the entrance to Robin Hood Woods. What that leaves us with is a gap in credible sightings of Stevie from 4.30 to 6 p.m. And as we'll get into later, even the 4.30 sighting is a bit of a stretch. But for now, let's jump back to Michael and Christopher. Stevie is last seen with Michael and Mystery Boy near Weaver Elementary somewhere around 4.30. Christopher is not included in this sighting. As I stated earlier, I'm considering a hypothesis that Chris first leaves the group to go home when they pass his house. He's on foot while Stevie and Michael and the Mystery Boy are on bikes. He can't really keep up and he's already late, so he decides to go home. And shortly thereafter, Stevie also decides it's time to head home. At this point, we are still nearly an hour away from the time when Christopher's parents will return home. And according to his parents, Chris tried to break in through his window but failed sometime that afternoon. And then the next sighting that we have is that of Sheila Dunlap's son. They live at 709 Wilson, just behind the buyer's house. In this sighting, he states that around 4.30 that he specifically saw Chris Byers and Michael Moore playing together. No Stevie and no fourth mystery boy. Just Michael and Christopher. Add that to Bruce Jackson's sighting. He lived at 719 Holiday, which runs off of Wilson, and stated that just after 5, he saw only two of the boys in his yard. To fit these sightings into our possible hypothesis, I believe that it's possible that after Stevie and Chris split off from Michael, that Michael may have returned home as well. We do have some indications that we'll get into in a future episode that Michael's parents weren't home at that time either. Michael is right across the street from Christopher, and since Christopher couldn't get into his house, the two of them may have taken off together again. Just the two of them. They play for a bit, and they're seen by the Dunlap boy and Mr. Jackson together before Michael decides to take off on his bike again, leaving Chris to his own devices. We don't have any indication of what happened to the mystery boy at this point. Although it's important to point out that police were canvassing with only pictures of the three victims. And that may have dictated the responses that they got from their door-to-door questioning. Meaning sightings like the Dunlap boy may have been dictated by the questions that were asked. Did you see any of these three boys? Yes, I saw Michael and Chris. It's possible that the mystery boy was there too, but the officer didn't ask about him. Only the three. As we move on with our hypothetical timeline, we find a conflicting sighting in the way of Catherine Fleming. She says that around 5 p.m. she saw, quote, the three boys riding their bikes near Mayfair Apartments. The issue is that the three boys in question didn't all have bikes. She doesn't name any of the three by name, just the three boys. At 5.15, we have what seems to be a fairly accurate sighting. Christy Blanchard at 824 Holiday says that around 515 she saw two boys riding bikes. She doesn't identify the two boys by name, but states that one was wearing a Cub Scout uniform and one was in a white shirt. The boy in the Cub Scout uniform most certainly would have been Michael Moore. However, the white shirt boy could have been Stevie, Christopher, Mystery Boy, or any other boy in a white shirt for that matter. We do have three sightings of Michael Moore playing without Chris or Stevie. One is that of the daughter of Michael Thomas, a 1202 Proctor. The statement was taken on May 7th, two days after the sighting occurred, and is relayed secondhand by Michael himself. 
He says that on the 5th, his daughter saw Michael playing around 4 or 4.30 with a child whose name has been redacted from the report. Mr. Thomas relays that his daughter told him that Michael said that he had a secret hideout behind Mayfair and that he was going to go there. There are credible and non-credible parts to this sighting. Under the category of credible, Thomas's daughter identifies Michael by name. It says in the notes that she was in class at Weaver with him. Also, we have to consider the fact that she indicates that Michael says he is going to go to a hideout behind Mayfair, and in fact, his body was discovered in exactly that area. And we also have several indicators that Michael was indeed playing in the area of her neighborhood without Stevie or Christopher that afternoon. Remember that Doris Gately told police that her grandson Trey was playing with Michael that afternoon and that Michael didn't say where he was going when he left. We also have Jerry Walker, who says that he saw Michael alone calling two black males' names on North 14th Street. And then we also have Betty Johnson's statement to the West Memphis Evening Times that she saw Stevie riding his bike alone, traveling south on 16th. We also have additional sightings that support Michael's riding off and playing without Stevie or Chris for a period of time. Lakeisha Freeman told police that she was playing with only Christopher on a skateboard on North 14th Street that afternoon. And we also have John Mark Byers' account of finding Chris alone riding on his belly on a skateboard in the middle of the street around 520. These are all indicators that Michael Thomas's daughter's sighting was legit, although several of these supporting sightings lack a timestamp. And this is where Thomas's daughter's statement does lack some credibility. The time of the sighting. She says that the encounter occurred between 4 and 4.30. The problem is that we have conflicting sightings of Michael in other places with other people at the same time. Considering the fact that the notes given to police came secondhand, originally from an 8-year-old girl, and two days after the fact, my personal hypothesis is that this sighting did occur, corroborated by the other sightings that I just mentioned. However, I believe that Michael was playing without Christopher and Stevie near Proctor closer to 5.30 p.m., rather than 4.30. At 5.30, this sighting fits with all of the other sightings. Working off of this premise, again, just a possible hypothesis of the boys' movements, between 5 and 5.30, Michael is in the north end of the neighborhood playing with Trey, and some of the time playing alone. Christopher is near his home on 14th and Barton, in the center of the neighborhood, playing with a skateboard, and Stevie Branch is at home or near it in the south end of the neighborhood. So at this point, all three boys are separated from one another and spread out in opposite corners of the neighborhood. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So now we've reached 5.30 p.m. So let's start by focusing on Christopher, since his movements are the easiest to track. According to both John Mark Byers and his wife, Melissa, they returned home around 5.20 p.m. Mark had left Chris's brother, Ryan, at the courthouse and went to Memphis to pick Melissa up from work. When they returned, they found the window broken from Chris's supposed attempted break-in, and Melissa stayed home while Mark was to return to court to pick up Ryan. As Mark was leaving, he found Christopher riding a skateboard down the middle of 14th Street on his belly. According to Mark and Melissa, he then put Chris into his car and drove him back home where he spanked him. 
and according to Mark, Chris wanted to go inside and pout, but instead, he was given a plastic bag and told to clean up the trash from under the carport. Mark then left to return to the courthouse to pick up Ryan. Melissa testified at trial that she then got on the phone in her kitchen, and at some point she said that she looked outside and saw Chris under the carport cleaning. She stated that she heard him come in and out a few times and go upstairs. In notes from a police interview with John Mark, there's an indication at the bottom that buyers told police that they had noticed a bag of candy and $2 missing from the house that belonged to Ryan. When Mark and Ryan returned home from court around 6.20, Chris was nowhere to be found. Melissa had told them that she thought he was upstairs in his bedroom. Ryan checked and also checked a few neighbors' houses, and the search for Christopher began. If Mark, Melissa, and Ryan are all recounting these events accurately, then we're looking at a window of opportunity for Chris to have left from approximately 6 p.m. to 6.20. This is taking into account the fact that he was returned home by Mark at 5.30. We allow for time for a discussion, spanking, and the direction to clean the carport. After this, Melissa says she saw Chris outside cleaning as he was told to do, and added that a few trips inside, up and down the stairs. And then we have the Bobby Posey sighting. Bobby lived on Barton Street, west of Weaver Elementary. Now, my original assumption was that Bobby's encounter with Chris, where Chris said that his daddy whipped him and he was running away, happened at Bobby's house. However, after a little deeper analysis, I think I might have gotten that detail wrong. The Bobby Posey note reads as follows. Marjorie Posey. Bobby Posey. Chris said daddy whipped him and was going to run away. Carlos Seals, 808 Wilson. Why is Carlos mentioned here along with his address? Does it mean that this is actually where the conversation occurred? The note goes on to read, Chris left and dad came to door and asked Carlos where Chris, hyphen, on Goodwin. And dad stated going to have to whip him again. Bobby went to Carlos's house and stayed till 8 p.m. One thing that we know for sure is that this conversation happened after Chris was punished by John Mark. Given the fact that Melissa testified to seeing Chris cleaning the carport after John Mark left for court, that puts this sighting likely somewhere around or after 6 p.m. But where did it occur? We know that Bobby Posey went to Carlos's house on Wilson that evening. We know that his path of travel would have taken him right past Chris Byers' house. For some reason, it seemed important to note that Bobby went to Carlos's that evening and stayed there till 8 o'clock. The note said that Mark Byers asked Carlos, not Bobby Posey, where Chris was, and it seems Carlos suggested that Chris was on Goodwin. The note also says, Chris left and Dad came to door. This would seem as though the two events happen in short succession of one another. But where did it happen? At Bobby Posey's house on Barton? Or at Carlos Seal's house on Wilson? Mark inadvertently gave us the answer to that question when I interviewed him back in September. At the time, I didn't know anything about Bobby Posey or Carlos. Mark was just recounting to me all of the places that he, Melissa, and Ryan went that night looking for Chris. We were going to eat with a state trooper lived right across the street. Black gentleman. Well, I run across there, talked to his little boy. He said, no, I ain't seen him. So I came back in, got Melissa and Ryan. I said, let's go around this Mexican family. There was a boy named Carlos who was uh, Ryan's best buddy. There four or five boys stair stepped. We drove around behind that. That was in our neighborhood. And we went down 14th to Brett Smith. At this point, I think it's safe to assume that the encounter with Carlos and Mark Byers did occur at 808 Wilson and not at Bobby Posey's house on Barton. 
Since the note also says that Chris left and Dad came to door, we can also safely assume that Chris was at Carlos's house and not at Bobby's. However, when we consider the fact that Carlos suggests that Chris is on Goodwin and does not tell Mark that he said he's running away, we have to wonder if Carlos actually had this information. Either Carlos was intentionally withholding that information from Chris's father, respecting Chris's wish to run away, or Carlos didn't know that he had said it. If the latter is true, and we couple that with the fact that Bobby would have had to walk right past Chris's house on his way to Carlos's, I believe a reasonable consideration could be that Chris saw Bobby walking by and joined him on his way to Carlos's house. It could have been during this short walk that Chris told Bobby Posey that his dad had whipped him and that he was running away. Now, before we move on to Michael and Stevie's locations during this time period, let's travel just a little bit deeper down this Carlos and Bobby rabbit hole. I want to take a little closer look at Kim Williams' statement. Kim told police that between 5.30 and 6, she saw Michael and Stevie going into the Robin Hood woods. Chris was not with them. She stated that the boys parked their bikes on Goodwin, the same area where Carlos Seals told Mark Byers to look for Christopher. She also stated that she saw three older boys coming out of the woods, two black and one white. These are the older boys that Don Moore said offered her a shot in the same area. The last paragraph of Kim Williams' statement reads, quote, Kim stated that she saw the white male and one or both of the black males going into one of four houses south of Goodwin on the west side of the street. Carlos told Byers to look up on Goodwin. That's the same area where Kim and Dawn described seeing the two black males and one white male. Now, in the clip you just heard, John Mark Byers described Carlos as being part of a, quote, Mexican family. And with a name like Carlos, one might assume that Carlos is in fact Mexican. Surprisingly, however, this is not true. Now, I have no way of knowing if Carlos does have some amount of Mexican heritage, but by appearance, I would describe Carlos Seals as being African-American or black. And where did Carlos Seals live? On Wilson Road, five houses south of Goodwin, on the west side of the road. Now, let's shift our attention back to Stevie and Michael. The last confirmed sighting that we have of Stevie is actually Betty Johnson. While Betty doesn't list a time, she does specifically name Stevie when she said she saw him riding alone south on 16th Street. Before that, we have Pam Hobbs' statement that she walked home with Stevie and gave him permission to leave with Michael around 3.30. We have no sightings of him or Michael between 3.30 and 4.30, and then after that, we only have vague references that could be Stevie. R.L. Fountain saw, quote, two of the boys headed north on 14th. Darling Hollingsworth saw, quote, three boys on bikes, but could only describe the heavyset boy in the shorts. Christy Blanchard saw a boy in a Cub Scout uniform and a boy in a white t-shirt. And Catherine Fleming saw, quote, the three boys on bikes. The only two people to actually identify Stevie by name is Betty Johnson and Pam Hobbs. We don't even so much as have a sighting describing a blonde-haired boy prior to 6 p.m. Michael, on the other hand, is identified by name and his Cub Scout uniform several times, further indicating that Michael was in the neighborhood playing without Stevie during those early hours. Included in these sightings, we have that of Alan Bailey Jr. He told police that he talked to Michael around 5.45 p.m., he said that Michael told him that he was going to go pick up Chris. 
Alan's father told police that this encounter happened as they were backing out of their driveway. Alan was yelling at Michael out of the window of the car. Alan goes on to say that, quote, Stevie wouldn't talk. This, of course, would lead us to believe that Stevie was with Michael at 545. But there's a problem with Alan's identification of Stevie. He tells police that Stevie was wearing red shorts. And as we all know, Stevie was wearing blue jeans, which cannot easily be confused with red shorts. This encounter happened on W.E. Cat Street. That's at the very northwest corner of the neighborhood near the pipe bridge. It's also a block away from where Michael was seen by two other witnesses playing with, in one account, his friend Trey, and in another he was playing with someone whose name has been redacted. And let's not forget about our mystery boy seen by Narling Hollingsworth, who was wearing shorts. By my analysis, the first actual confirmed sighting of Michael and Stevie occurred when Kim Williams saw the two of them entering Robin Hood off of Goodwin. In this sighting, both boys were identified by name, and Kim clearly stated that she did not see Chris Byers with the two. She says this occurred somewhere between 5.30 and 6 p.m. Ben Crafton, who has oftentimes been pegged as being with Kim that night and saw the boys, actually was not with Kim. In his statement, he says that he was home when he saw Kim Williams riding her bike with Stevie and Michael around 6 p.m. In a later, more detailed statement, he even describes the bikes as one being newer and red, and the other being an older green bike that looked like it had been painted several times. These are perfect descriptions of Stevie and Michael's bikes. We can add to the credibility of these sightings with Michael Smith's daughter, who said that she saw, quote, them on bikes at 6 p.m. entering Robin Hood. And then also Jason Goble, who said he saw two boys on bikes at 6 p.m. on Wilson. So here we have the first confirmed sighting of Stevie and Michael together since they left the Hobbs house at 3.30. We can definitely put Stevie and Michael together without Christopher at 6 p.m. on Goodwin going into Robin Hood Woods. The question now becomes, when and where did Michael and Stevie reconnect? We have the sighting of Stevie headed south on 16th Street by Betty Johnson, and he is absent from any sightings with Michael from 4.30 until 6. We'll get into the possible whens and where shortly. However, regarding Kim Williams and Ben Crafton's sightings, this would have been occurring at about the same time that Chris was, quote, running away from his home on 14th and Barton. Based on Carlos Seal's statement, Chris then went to his house at 808 Wilson, Carlos's house, as mentioned before, was just five houses away from Goodwin in the entrance to Robin Hood where Stevie and Michael had just been sighted. Then next, we have Dana Moore sighting the boys. If her account is accurate, she actually witnessed the three boys finally reconnecting. She says that around 6, she saw Chris on a skateboard north of her house on 14th. This would have been directly between the entrance to Robin Hood and her house. She says that Michael and Stevie were on their bikes and Chris got off his skateboard and got onto the back of Stevie's bike. They then headed north on 14th, back in the direction of Robin Hood. By my estimation, we're now at around 6.10 to 6.15, and the three boys are together in the north end of the neighborhood, and the sightings continue. Let's now examine the sightings of Betty Lou and Jeff Martins. They both reported in September, four months after the murders, that they saw four boys together going into Robin Hood Woods that night. 
Unfortunately, we do have some problems with their sightings. During the door-to-door questioning, Jeff told police that at 6.30 p.m. he saw, quote, all three boys on bikes headed toward Robin Hood. That information was given to police within a couple of days of the bodies being found. Four months later, Jeff Martins goes into the police station and updates his statement. In this statement, he changes the time of the sighting from 6.30 to 5.30, and he also adds a fourth boy. In his handwritten statement given on September 7th, Jeff says that he saw two boys on one bike. One was on the handlebars, another on a bike by himself, and a fourth boy walking with them. He does seemingly specifically identify Chris Byers in that he says that Chris's brother Ryan later that evening came by looking for his brother and Jeff told him where he had seen him. There are two things that conflict with his previous statement here. Number one, obviously, is the time, but that's understandable. It's been four months and he's not viewing or reviewing the notes taken by police from May. It's very possible that by this point, he just simply remembers the event occurring at 530. If we have to choose and assuming best intentions, My assessment would be that the first description was the more accurate time. The sighting probably occurred closer to 6.30. But the other glaring issue, of course, is the addition of the fourth boy. If, again, we were assuming that Martins had the best of intentions here, the only explanation that I can come up with for adding another boy to the narrative would be that he, again, was shown photos of the three victims and asked if he'd seen them. He could have simply responded, yes, I saw all three of them at 6.30 going towards Robin Hood. Later, when asked to give a full statement, he goes into detail and informs police that along with the three, there was a fourth boy. Now, his mother seems to corroborate this narrative when she gives her statement to the police on the same day. She says that, quote, about 5 p.m., she and Jeff were on the way to his doctor appointment when they saw the three boys. She also says, quote, later, after thinking about it, we realized there was a fourth one, too. So there were four boys in all. With these two statements, three counting Jeff's original statement, the issues here are clear to see. First, Jeff says three boys at 6.30, then four boys at 5.30, and his mom says four boys at 5 o'clock. So we have to decide if the inconsistencies warrant tossing them out of the narrative, or if a four-month passage of time simply warped the details, specifically the time. I think that the latter is probably our best course of action here. I see no reason for either Betty Lou or Jeff to intentionally lie. Without any planning or forethought, when the West Memphis Police Department knocked on their door a few days after the murders and asked if Jeff had seen the boys, he said that he had indeed seen all three of them at 6.30. I believe that this is likely the most accurate version of the story. Now, As far as the fourth boy is concerned, I also see no reason for the two of them to make up a fourth boy. At this point, the three later convicted of these murders had already been arrested and were awaiting trial. There's just no utility in adding a fourth boy to the mix. I personally don't think that they're lying, and I'm considering this to be a valid sighting, although as I stated earlier, I believe it actually occurred probably closer to 6.30. Then we also have Brian Woody's statement, or at least some version of it, seems to also fit with the 6.30 sightings from the Martins. While times and details shift around, much like Deborah Odinger's statements, Woody says that when he was on his way to his mother's house on Goodwin after work, he saw four boys entering Robin Hood. He specifically identifies one of the boys as having spiky blonde hair. In his initial statement, he declared that there were four boys and two bikes entering the woods. As I said, as time went on, the details of his encounter shifted. However, this first version does support both Jeff and Betty Lou Martin's statements that there were four boys on two bikes in the same area entering Robin Hood. 
Jeff Martin seems to identify Chris specifically, and Brian Woody identifies one of the boys as having blonde, spiky hair consistent with Stevie's. We can also add to these John and Susan Amata's son, who stated that, quote, saw boys at 6.30 on Goodwin Circle. If these accounts are accurate, then we have a problem. We have three different witnesses that seemingly witnessed Stevie, Michael, and Chris entering the Robin Hood woods along with a mysterious fourth boy at around 6.30 p.m., along with the Amata boy's statement who says that he saw them in the same area at the same time. Although the timing of the Martins' accounts are definitely questionable, and Woody originally gives a range of times between 6.30 and 6.45, later adjusted to say that he got off work at 6.30, so it must have been closer to 6.45, the four sightings do seem to all fit together with each other but not with Jamie Clark Ballard and Deborah Moyer's statements. At the exact time that Jamie and Deborah claim to have seen the three boys zooming out into the street through their yard in the very south end of the neighborhood, four other witnesses claim to have seen them at the exact opposite end of the neighborhood. The boys could not be in two places at once, so who do we believe? In my opinion, the answer is simple. In order for Jamie and Deborah's sightings to be credible, Jeff Martin's initial statement, Brian Woody's statement, and the Amata Boy's statements all have to be inaccurate or lies. And to me, that just seems unlikely. We know that at 6 p.m., Stevie and Michael were up near Robin Hood. There's no question there. We also have a pretty good indication that Chris was at Carlos Seal's house at about that same time, which is very close to Robin Hood. Then we add in Dana Moore's statement that she saw all three boys hook up on 14th Street and head back north towards Robin Hood sometime shortly after 6. And then we have four witnesses that claim to see the boys near the entrance to Robin Hood at about 6.30. Circling back to the Martin statements, remember that Jeff originally said that the sighting occurred at 6.30. Four months later, he and his mom slid the time back to 5 or 5.30, but we know this can't be true. Jeff says he specifically saw Ryan's brother with the group. That's Chris. But we know that from 5.30 until at least 6, Chris was at home being punished. We also know that after that, and before connecting with Stevie and Michael, he talked to Bobby Posey and went to Carlos's house on Wilson. The conclusion being that it would have been impossible for Jeff and Betty Lou to have seen Chris with Stevie and Michael before, conservatively, 6.15. Therefore, I would offer that the time given by Jeff originally was the accurate one, 6.30 p.m. In my opinion, Jamie Clark Ballard and her mother, Deb Moyer, are either wrong or lying about their sighting of the three boys at 6.30. As I said in this week's follow-up, I personally believe that they are not intentionally lying, but rather recounting their truth, what they could remember 15 years later. In order for me to be right, then the sightings of the boys had to have had occurred just earlier in the day. And as we wrap up this episode, I'm going to summarize our hypothetical timeline and see if we can fit in Jamie and Deborah's sightings or if we have to write them off as fabrications. Before we walk through the completed hypothetical timeline, we need to discuss what I've called in the past the last credible sighting of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Chris Wall stated that he got out of night school at 645. His dad drove him home, and on the way home, he saw Chris and Stevie on a bike headed towards Robin Hood on West Macaulay. At least that's how I understood it, until I dug a little deeper with the help of some listeners. Chris reported his sighting during the door-to-door questioning. The note reads, 6.45 to 7 saw Chris, East Barton and Macaulay, 
Blonde with Chris, Red Bike, Full Spray on Paint, Towards Robin Hood. At a glance, this seems like Chris is on Stevie's bike. Or does it? The note says, quote, Red Bike, both spray on paint. Assuming that those two notes go together, we have a problem. Stevie's bike was brand new. It was red, but it would be really strange for anyone to assume that it was spray painted. Michael Moore's bike, on the other hand, was spray painted. He had inherited his bike from his sister Dawn. It was pink or purple, and he spray painted it green so it wouldn't look like a girl's bike. But Michael could never be mistaken for having blonde hair. His hair was dark brown. In a later interview, Wall tells police that he saw, quote, the buyer's boy and one other boy. They were on bicycles. Another problem. Chris didn't have a bike. He couldn't have seen Chris and one other boy both on bicycles. By the time you read all of Chris Wall's different accounts, his sighting becomes about as clear as mud. But why tell police that he saw the boys at all if he didn't? Chris was a suspect at one time. Pam Hobbs names him as someone to look into in an interview with police on May 9th. Or at least it appears it was Pam. In the Chris Wall police file, we find a note that seems to be an interview with either Pam or about Pam. The note states that the boys would have trusted him and that he lives on Goodwin. Also that he wanted to babysit, it says, quote, mother's four-year-old daughter. Presumably the mother referred to here is Pam and the four-year-old daughter is Amanda. Chris was later questioned, polygraphed, and cleared. Now, it's been suggested that maybe he made up the sightings to divert police attention away from himself. And while that could be true in his later statements, he had no idea that he was a suspect when the police knocked on his door and he made his first report of seeing Chris with a blonde boy. Given the timing, his motivation for reporting the sighting would seem to be legitimate. We still have issues with the number of bikes and the whole spray-painted bit, but perhaps this could be explained by Wall mistaking Michael for Christopher. If that were the case, you would have two boys, one blonde, one dark-haired, both on bikes, and one was spray-painted. So now his statement is starting to make some sense. But we have yet another problem with Wall's statement. He says that he got out of night school between 6.45 and 7 p.m. He continues on in his police interview to say that when he got home, he called his girlfriend Brandy Armour, and they talked on the phone for a while. Two months later, it appears that one of West Memphis Police Department officers followed up on Chris Wall and called Brandy to verify the notes on the interview with Brandy read as follows. On phone, 7.30 p.m., 15-minute break at school. Payphone at school. Brandy knew that number. She would call and Chris would be waiting for the call. This occurred every night, and then there's a word I can't read. Talk during break. Then when Chris would come home from class, we always talked on phone. So, problem. In this note, Brandy is saying that Chris Wall was still in night school every night at 7.30. She would call him on the payphone. And yet Chris says that on May 5th, he left school between 6.45 and 7. So what does this mean? Honestly, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I've spoken with people who say that the Brandy note completely discredits Wall's sighting. He couldn't have been driving down West Macaulay seeing the boys at 6.45 if he was still in school talking on the payphone at 7.30. While this is true, I'm not so quick to write off Chris Wall. If you read the Brandy note carefully, you'll see that she never makes a statement about what happened specifically on May 5th. All she is doing is describing their routine. They did this whole payphone bit every night. Keep in mind that at best, Brandy was contacted by the police two months after the fact, and maybe longer. This note is attributed to July 2nd on the Callahan website, although if you go to our site or theirs to view the document, 
you'll see that the month number of the date is actually covered up by another page. You can only see a little bit of it. Now, it could be a 7, but to me, there is a distinctive curve to that number, indicating that the month could be a 9, a 10, or a 12. And if that's right, that pushes the time between the incident and the follow-up even further apart. In any case, I personally can't throw the baby out with the bathwater concerning Chris Wall. I can't see any motivation for him to make up the sighting, although the details are definitely confusing, and I can't throw it out based on his girlfriend's statement that they had a routine of calling on a payphone every night at 7.30 for gospel. Maybe he got out early that one night, or maybe he started a new class in June with a different schedule. Who knows? As far as the Chris Wall sighting is concerned, in my professional opinion, I don't have a clue if it's legit or not. For the sake of credibility, in my timeline, I have to move the last known sighting of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher back from 645 to 630 and put them back at the entrance to Robin Hood off of Goodwin. Which leads us to our next step. Taking all of the information that we just went over and creating a possible, if not plausible, hypothetical timeline for the boys. In applying the scientific method of investigation, your job is to consider my hypothesis and do two things. Number one, search for mistakes. Not opinions, but facts in the case that I may have missed or misread that shoot holes in the hypothesis. Secondly, if you determine that my hypothesis is wrong, present me with an alternative timeline that still fits the evidence. This is where we truly begin our process of crowdsourcing this investigation. I'm certain that it will take more than just one attempt and many minds working together, but I believe we'll end up with a plausible theory as to the boys' movements on May 5th, 1993 by the time we're done. Before I begin with this hypothetical timeline, I want to put out a call for help. The information that we are covering today is complex and can be difficult to follow. I would love to have someone create an animation tracking these movements. Not a flowchart, but an actual moving video animation of some kind, so that we can see and not just hear the timeline. If you happen to have the tools, skills, and desire to take this on, please shoot us an email. And now, let's begin our day. After school, Pam walks home with Stevie. Michael goes home, and Christopher is missing in action. At 325, Michael takes off on his bike down 14th Street, headed towards Stevie's. At 3.30, Michael arrives at Stevie's, and Pam gives them permission to go ride bikes until 4.30. Stevie and Michael leave the house and head north on 16th Street. Ten minutes later, at 3.40, Christopher shows up at Stevie's. He goes inside and watches Muppet Babies with Amanda until 4 p.m. Meanwhile, Stevie and Michael are playing in the southeast neighborhood near the Hobbs house. 4 p.m., Chris leaves the Hobbs house and finds Stevie and Michael headed south across Macaulay. The three connect and play around the south bayou behind Jamie Clark Ballard's house. This is when she sees them in the backyard, as opposed to her statement of 5.30. At 4.15, the boys head back out into the southeast neighborhood. This could have been when Jamie saw the three boys dart out from behind her house. Statements do indicate that Terry Hobbs was in and out of the house around this time and was expecting to be home at any minute. In this hypothesis, he yells at Stevie to get back down there. A side note, I'm not suggesting that there's any proof that this actually happened. It's simply the only time and circumstance where I can see it being possible for Jamie's statement to be credible. At 
4.30, the three boys emerge onto Barton with a fourth boy. Chris can't keep up with the bikes, and he's late to be home, and he's right next to his house, so he splits off from the group and goes home. This is when he tries to break in through the window. Stevie, Michael, and Mystery Boy continue down Barton on their bikes when they are almost hit by Narlene Hollingsworth. At that point, Mystery Boy takes off, and Stevie heads home, taking Wilson south to Scottwood, then 16th south directly into his driveway. Michael, now without a playmate, goes to Christopher's house to see if he still wants to play. None of the boy's parents are home at this point. At 4.40, Chris and Michael take off towards Wilson Street to play. And at 4.45, the Hobbs lead their house to head to the Moors looking for Stevie on their way to take Pam to work. By the time they get to the Moors' house, Stevie is headed south on 16th, and Michael and Christopher are playing on Wilson. At 5 p.m., Chris heads over to Lakeisha Freeman's house, where he plays on a skateboard, and Michael heads over to his friend Trey's house to see if he can play. He takes the short connecting street between Wilson and 14th. When he gets to 14th, he sees two black males walking. He yells at them, calls them names, and takes off on his bike towards Proctor Street. Stevie is at home waiting for his stepdad to return at this point. Then we jump up to 5.30. Chris has picked up his dad on 14th Street and taken home. Michael is still playing with Trey in the northwest corner of the neighborhood, and Stevie is still missing in action. Then at 5.45, Michael tells Alan Bailey that he's going to go get Chris. He knew that Stevie had to be home for the night when he left, but the last he had seen Chris, there were still no parents home at his house. At this point, Chris is pouting about his spanking and is beginning to clean under the carport. Stevie leaves his house on his bike again to look for Michael. At 5.55, Stevie finds Michael up near Robin Hood. Stevie tells Michael that he's in trouble for being late and probably even more now for leaving again. They decided to hide out in Robin Hood. As they get on their bikes, they come across Kim Williams, who's also on her bike. They ride past Ben Crafton's house, park their bikes on the side of the road, and walk towards the Devil's Den. As they're walking in, Carlos Seals and a couple of his buddies are walking out. They had snuck back into the woods to drink or get higher or whatever teenagers did in 1993. Then Carlos and his buddies harass the boys for a bit and then walk out and come across Dawn Moore. They ask her if she wants a shot. She leaves them and goes to her friend Kim Williams' house. At 6 p.m., Bobby Posey walks past the buyer's house as Chris is running outside. Sack of candy and $2 in tow, Bobby asks him what he's doing, and Chris says he's running away because his daddy whipped him. He walks with Bobby up to Wilson to Carlos's house. At 6.15, Carlos tells Chris that he had just seen his friends up on Goodwin going into Robin Hood. Chris decides to leave and go find them. At this same time, Michael and Stevie leave the woods. Michael had told Stevie that he knew of a better place to hide out until Stevie's mom got home. He says that he has a secret hideout behind Mayfair across the pipe bridge. At 6.20, the two exit the woods and find Chris, who is looking for them on 14th Street. They ride down to him. Dana Moore just got home and is walking her dog at the time and sees Christopher jump onto the back of Stevie's bike. Chris tells him that he wants to run away, and since Stevie wants to hide out as well, they head back up towards Robin Hood. At 6.25, Michael is trying to convince Stevie and Chris to go across the pipe to his hideout. Chris is afraid to cross the pipe and would rather hide out in the Robin Hood area. During this time, they come across another friend. This is either our original mystery boy or a new mystery boy. By 6.30, the four boys go back into the Devil's Den area, where Michael continues to try to convince them to cross the pipe. Eventually, they all decide to go to Michael's hideout. By 6.45, they get to the pipe. They leave their bikes on the neighborhood side, much like they left the bikes on Goodwin when they went into Robin Hood. The three, or possibly four, boys cross the pipe bridge. And the next person, or persons, to see them alive...
killed them. For this week's follow-up, we really need all of you to take a good, hard look at this timeline. Look for holes. Look for mistakes. Propose alternate theories. As you've heard me say many times before, tracking the boy's movements and really understanding victimology is the most important piece to not only this investigation, but to any investigation. And next week, we are once again going to flip our perception of the boy's victimology on its head when I interview Michael's sister, Dawn Moore. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also designed and created our Season 5 logo. I want to thank Katie Ross of In Tandem Designs for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Anna Dindorf, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Thank you all for sticking with us during our holiday break. I hope you all had a great holiday. Please keep in touch with us by sending us emails to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or get involved in the discussion on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. You can also call to leave us a voicemail with a tip, a thought, or a theory, or a question at any time at 269-224-2833, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can also always follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.